0: and welcome to the Weekly Bunker Roundtable. I am your host, Alex Coming up in today's edition, these are local results for local people. There's nothing for you here. We read the runes of the May 5th contests. Tear out the front page. A politician is offering to do the right thing. The freak. Might Starmer's gamble turn beer gate from trap to weapon? The government's response to the cost of living crisis. Buy cheaper stuff. Value advice or finest hypocrisy? And as Kim Kardashian squeezes into Marilyn's dress, we ask what famous clothes our panel would wear to the annual Podmasters Gala. All that and more in this week's Bunker. Welcome back to The Bunker. Remember, if you enjoy the podcast, you can help us keep on keeping on by backing us on the crowdfunding site, Patreon. You'll get the shows early and free of interruption from adverts, plus all sorts of merchandise and other benefits. You can support us for as little as £2 less than the price of a coffee. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast or follow the link in the show notes. Now, let's meet today's panel. First up, welcome back to Journalist and Author, Marie Leconte live in the studio.
1: Buonasera. <laughs>
0: Marie, uh, you've just come back from an, an extended break in Venice, where I understand from your Twitter feed you tormented Venezia Football Club. <laughs> um, did you manage to fully escape the world of politics?
1: Oh, I really did not. I am so ashamed of myself. <laughs> I, really going. I was like, I'm going to unsubscribe from Playbook. I'm not going to read anything. It's going to be such a good break. And I sort of managed it for a bit. But I think, so I would say the lowest point in hindsight was come on, so that must have been three weeks ago or something. On a beautiful evening, it was actually quite mild, you know. And, and, and to be fair, I think I had gone out in the evening, but I'd gone home quite early and I was. In bed at 10pm, furiously WhatsApping everyone I knew to try and find the name of the porn MP. <laughs> what am I? Why am I in Venice if that's what I'm going to be doing anyway?
0: <laughs> just when I thought I was out, they <laughs> pull me back in. Uh, you're also, listeners may not know, massive Whovian. and chutigatwa was announced as the next Doctor Who over the weekend, just as right wing commentators were recovering from the first ever female. Doctor Wham! She reincarnates into a flamboyant British Randon. Is this great casting, superb trolling, or both?
1: So I'm going to start by, I, I would say, making myself very sexually appealing to the many scissors by saying that actually Doctor Who is the name of the show, not the character. The character is just the <laughs> Doctor. Um, <laughs> I am single. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, but I, I, so I would say I, I sort of, um, I think, object slightly to that framing in that I, I think it is generally just absolutely amazing casting. And I, I worry that, so I sort of get what you were getting at, but also I worry that we need to play into the crank's hands by saying, you know, this is trolling when I, no, he's just absolutely brilliant. You know, I, I watch Sex Education, uh, which I think is a brilliant show. And also, he is the shining light of that show. He could light up a room yeah, with his yeah. charisma. So I think, no, he's just absolutely brilliant. And, and that Sort of that, and I'm so has. happy. All so this happy, has. yeah.
0: Also, with us, comedian and broadcaster Ahir Shah. Hello, Hello. I hear also live in the studio. I another Brexit bonus a ban has been lifted on radioactive fish and vegetables from near the Fukushima disaster nuclear plant. Will you be tucking in?
2: Well. Listen, I am a huge (laughs) fan of nuclear power generally. So I think that this is a situation where you got to take the rough with the smooth, right? I'm sort of, I'm saved from the fish by my vegetarianism. But if what it needs for this country to build any sort of infrastructure to provide energy security later in the 21st century is for me to have a delicious glowing cucumber maki, then'll <laughs> I'll take one for the tea give me my give me my bright edamame. I want fluorescent edamame.
0: It's listen it could it could also help with the energy crisis because you could eat your sushi in the dog. <laughs> <laughs> Our special guest today is Metro Mayor of the North of Tyne Combined Authority, Jamie Driscoll. Welcome to the Bunker, Jamie. Virtually, that is. Hello, Alex. Pleasure to be here. Jamie, um, voters in Bristol decided to abolish its directly elected mayor following a referendum. As a mayor yourself, what do you make of this result?
3: I'm all for democracy, but uh, it was interesting reading some of the comments. Uh, about that. And people were saying, um, oh, we didn't want to get rid of the mayor. We wanted to get rid of uh, Marvin, which I think is a bit harsh. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, it's, it's not what you want to be
0: hearing as a politician, is it? But uh, he was re-elected only last year, right? And I mean, if the role of a mayor is to represent a city and raise its profile, by that metric, Marvin Rees has done a pretty decent job. And uh, it was Liberal Democrats and Greens that moved the motion for a referendum. At a time when many progressives are talking about closer cooperation, is this a bit of a setback?
3: It's, yeah, the idea of progressive alliance is wonderful, isn't it? It's one of these things that, that if it happened, but then anybody who's involved in local politics knows that the, <laughs> the trenches people dig and lob hand grenades over at each other. Um, that's going to require some some pretty big people to to shake hands over that. Um, I don't know, maybe yeah, Christmas Day great game of football is the way to do it.
0: We'll be lobbing many more hand grenades at Jamie throughout the show. Britain went to the polls on Thursday. Well, some of it did. There were full council elections in Scotland, some local elections, combined authority mayoral elections and local authority mayoral elections in England and in Wales, and also the small matter of the Northern Ireland Assembly elections. According to a handy Daily Mail graph, losing 100 to 150 seats would be a disappointment for the Tories, and anything around 350 losses would constitute a disaster for the government. Well, they lost... 338 seats in England, along with 63 in Scotland and 86 in Wales. So naturally, the Mail's front page on Saturday read, Slippery Starmer in Crisis. Hmm. Murray, the Tories had an awful night. Uh, Was this midterm blues or was something bigger at play, do you think?
1: I think it was a bit of both. I think it it was certainly an element of midterm blues, but I think what What would worry me if I were a Conservative is that there's no... Oh, you know, so that, that, that's happened basically to previous governments and, you know, they managed to recover. There is no obvious plan here. So, yeah, A, there is no obvious plan for recovery. There's no, you know, OK, well, yes, fine, this happened. But, you know, we've got this coming and mm, that coming mm. in terms of like policies and campaigns and et cetera, even attacks, etc. So, you know, that, that's not kind of set up. But also, I think the problem, as I think we'll talk about later, is that they did kind of lost seats, you know, from all sides. So, you know, to Labour, to the Lib Dems, to mm, the Greens, mm. to Independents, etc. So there's not, and, and not because, you know, if you look at the kind of demographics of the wards they lost and the councils they lost. like It's not like there's one, you know, one big, simple reason, you know, which could actually be, you know, both good and bad, because, you know, bad because it's massive, but good because you can say, okay, well, so that one thing, yeah, yeah. clearly we screwed that one up, you know, and <laughs> then you can move on. Whereas it feels like, you know, there's sort of a bit of everything. So, so, yeah, I would say definitely more than your traditional sort of like midterm blues.
0: Yes, it feels a little bit like the levers they need to pull for each of the constituencies that they're doing badly with, they would need to pull them in the opposite direction for each.
1: It's almost like Boris Johnson tried to be all things to all people. (laughs) Almost. Who could have seen that one coming?
0: You know, it's interesting that Labour have had this problem for decades, that they have this very broad constituency of votes and they struggle to reconcile them. And now the the Tories have kind of inherited that along with those red wall seats.
1: But yeah, because what I think the problem you know, if you've been in power for that long, A, and B, if you've had three leaders who have been very, very different from one another in that, you know, over a decade in power, you're going to end up with a very unwieldy um, voting coalition.
0: The line to take for piece MPs doing the news round seemed to be that these were mixed results. Is <laughs> losing seats pretty much everywhere to pretty much everyone that mixed, really?
1: If you were to, I think, take the kindest possible look at the results, you could just about argue that the Tories held their own to an extent in the Red Wall. Um, And, you know, even though we see the last elections were in 2018, where, you know, we didn't even talk about the Red Wall at the time. And they did gain, you know, a a few councils, they gained some seats in Enfield, etc. So I think, I mean, it's just spin, isn't it? Like, Technically, yes, they're mixed because they were not literally all bad. You know, 100% of the results were not bad. and in that result, it was, it was mixed. <laughs> they,
0: they all kept coming on air and mentioning the same three constituencies, basically. Jamie, um, Labour only had a net gain of 22 seats in England, with many of their wins coming in London and the party suffering a slight drop in their vote up north. Um, you described that result on social media as being one nil up at half time, but that is because the opposition captain has scored an own goal. Why did you fail to pick up more seats, do you think?
3: Um, well, if we look, at I, I, I know the result in Tyne and Weir better than anywhere else. Um, yeah. I was out campaigning in all 12 constituencies here. Um, and it's definitely the case that people just don't trust Johnson, but there's still an element of not trusting anyone. Mm. And that's part of it. The other part of it is in local government, uh, council elections, it often comes up of, why haven't you cut the grass? And yeah. that's really hard to argue because you've then got to take people through funding formulas for local government. Um, The fact that you have a, a mandatory 2.99% increase on the council tax to fund adult social care because the government's pulled it out and you end up in discussions about, well, good, but it would mean cutting children's services to a dangerous level. Um, and that's not particularly the sort of conversation that people want to engage with when you mm. just knock on the door and said, stop eating your tea and come and talk to me. Um, so it is difficult. Um, but in, they've been pushing really hard on Sunderland, for example. We had Johnson up here. We had Sunak up here. In fact, we had Johnson up in Whitley Bay, um, even though he tweeted he was in Teesside. And uh, the, <laughs> we, we weren't a seat in Monkseaton from the Tories. So we've, we're actually done very well. There's not been a Tory elected in Newcastle since ni- for 30 years now, since 1992. Um, so uh, my whole part of the world, it's pretty solid. And I think it's also solid, actually, where you have labour metro mayors because there is something about wanting to see what people would do in power um, and that helps and i think when you haven't been in power for 12 years and then it was the tail end of the financial crash Mm. people have kind of forgotten what labour in power is like um and and there's that belief in i don't know the status of being in power makes people just listen to people more so i think Mm. there's an element of that um if we, It is definitely the case, though, that we're kind of 1-0 up at half-time, but the Tories are going to take their captain off sooner or later. Regardless of, of Kia's statement today, I thought Boris Johnson was toast anyway.
0: I hear the Liberal Democrats were the big winners, really, on the night, gaining the most seats and seeing their vote share rise to 19%. That, that's the highest it's been since the coalition years. Um, why did they do so well, do you think? Uh,
2: I think that there's a few things here. There's the fact that it's almost uh, cliche to say that the Liberal Democrats do well in local elections and tend to do better in local elections, I think, than they do uh, in general elections. Uh, I think there's also perhaps the more and more time passes uh, since the coalition years, and people have mainly gone, oh, well, now Nick Clegg is just that weird guy who occasionally insists that I conduct my life in a parallel universe rather than <laughs> uh, being the guy who fucked me over when I was a student or fucked my yeah, kids over yeah. when they were students. So maybe that's changed uh, things slightly. And also, I think that they were probably just the largest recipient of the kicking that a uh, lot of the country, a uh, lot of England, particularly the south of England, wanted to give to the Conservative Party, uh, right? They provided, as they often had, the very clear plague on your house, uh, people to go for. And in much the same way that I feel there was discussion in previous years about, oh, what about all of these Red Wall constituencies that the Labour Party has just taken for granted uh, over all of these years? And we've seen slowly but surely, that same process of taking a certain kind of southern constituency for granted uh, really come to affect the Conservative Party. So I would not be at all surprised uh, to see large amounts of southern England uh, ending up turning yellow in a way that would surprise the Tories, but won't get discussed in the same way as, quote unquote, Labour losing the Red Wall, because Labour winning elections is, of course, a tremendous problem for the Labour
0: Party. Yeah, some interesting constituencies in there as well of some very senior Mm. um, people. Um, So I always thought the fact you would struggle to Pick out Ed Davey in a lineup hmm. might be a, a hindrance, but actually, I think maybe weirdly a strength in that they become more of a party rather than this person that you either like or dislike or support or not support. Yeah. maybe maybe developing a brand as a group with a fairly anonymous leader is actually working quite. I mean, I don't. Yeah, I I'm don't being... think Ed would enjoy hearing this, but. <laughs> Maybe it's working for them. I think there's
2: something to that. And also just on the local organising and local campaigning uh, level, there probably is also something to the fact that Voters in these sorts of elections tend to be more receptive to leaflets coming through their doors saying, please do not worry, not a single brick will be laid anywhere near you if we get into yeah, yeah, yeah. power. Um, because, uh, and also, isn't it terrible that there's a housing crisis? But forget about that. Uh, but we will build absolutely nothing anywhere near anyone.
0: Yeah, two by-elections coming up in Wakefield and in Tiverton. i will be quite tasty, I think. Marie... Um, Lord Moylan said that Labour is now the party of Mayfair. Um, (laughs) uh, He said this six hours after the Conservatives lost Mayfair, uh, after, I think, a total of something like 64 years or 66 years. London comprises one of the most diverse franchises, 15% of the country's population. It generates almost a quarter of the UK's GDP. We are also the most poorly represented region in terms of a votes to MPs ratio. Why is the capital now so openly maligned? Oh, by it,
1: it drives me absolutely up the wall. You know, if you think for a start, you know that there are huge amounts of deprivation in London. So, councils, uh, so yeah, boroughs like Barking and Dagnam and Tower Hamlets, as some of the poorest in the country, have some areas that are poorest in the country. Even Westminster, because obviously you know Labour won mm. Westminster, and that was seen as, oh, uh, you know, the metropolitan elite have finally gone home to the Labour Party. Places like North Westminster are so poor, so deprived, so unequal. Uh, So it's not... So again, this kind of image of London, uh, we're all in our mansions burning £50 notes while the country freezes. Mm. Um, You know, it could not be further from the truth. And and I'm not sure... So this is something I've, I've written about recently, and I'm still not sure where it's come from. My theory... Um, at the moment is that it's one of the remnants of podcast favourite, the Brexit referendum. Um, In that, I think the kind of cleavage between, you know, Brexit and Remain, Brexit voters, Remain voters, etc., has mostly healed now, at least to an extent. But that weird cleavage between London, you know, fortress, fortress, Remain, elite London and the rest of the country is still kind of very much there because it's kind of in no one's interest to really fix it, you know, either Labour or the Tories because all the electoral battlegrounds at the moment are in the north, are all, you know, the southeast, but we're not really talking about that as we've talked about just now, uh, at least the parties are not. So, so yeah, no, it's, it's in no one's interest, I think, at the moment, electorally uh, electri- speaking, to really speak up for London, mm. which really sucks because, again, I think it, it is a city, you know, I, I do believe uh, entirely objectively, of course, of course, that it's the best city in the world. But it's also in clear decline. I've been here for over a decade yeah. and you know London is getting worse. Uh oh, we've got we've got angry, angry hand waving here. Uh,
3: definitely not the best city in the world.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Leave our cleavage alone, you <laughs> northerner. Um Jamie, in Scotland, uh Labour leapfrogged the Conservatives into second place, which is good. Is this the start of a recovery for you? Or does the astonishing fact that after fifteen years in power the SNP also made gains? Yeah. Um, does that make the contest for second place meaningless? It's like
3: it's yeah. I, I guess what we're talking about here is what's going to happen in the next general election. In yeah. many places. so it's going to be very hard. You just got to look at the maths. As, as much as I would like it, you've got to accept the reality that without Scottish seats, it's very hard for Labour to get an overall majority. It's going to require massive shifts in England for compensate for that, or some very, very complicated coalition arrangements. And a coalition uh, the, the politics of Scotland are so heavily dominated by independence now. Um, and uh, given that that's the background of it, how is it that Labour can go into a coalition with the SNP if the SNP say the price of that is independence? Um, so I think that's that's what someone. Well, the pri- the, I mean, no. the price
0: of it won't be independence; it will be another referendum. Um, you can offer that without supporting independence, can't you?
3: Um, you can, but I don't think it's going to necessarily be spun like that. Um, and then, mm. because immediately we ask what's your position on it, and all of these things then determine you're going to what's going to happen in that election. Um, that will all have to be negotiated in advance. So you then add in um, the the difficulties. Of the press, the voter suppression that's coming in, the boundary changes that are coming in or likely to come in, and it does make it very, very hard. Um, So, I do think that that one of the things we should be doing is very strongly pushing for more devolution, power to local councils, power to metro mayors, power to the Welsh government, Um, because if we're going to depend on on Westminster elections, yeah, what Marie was talking about there, I'm always very careful to say that it's not London that I have a problem with, it's Westminster and Whitehall that I have a problem with, mm. um, and it's the city of London and the economy that's based still substantially on financial trading, whereas the people of London actually suffer from that because their house prices are are off the scale um, and, and poverty's rampant as a
0: result. We're about to hear from Amanda Ferguson in Belfast on the Northern Ireland Assembly results, but as a general point, um, with Sinn Féin... As the top party there in the SNP in Scotland, you—it sounds like you would agree that Labour needs to resign a little bit to the centrifugal forces that are pulling the union a little bit further apart, and maybe offer a settlement that will mean a new sort of federalized arrangement, but not a complete break-up. is, is there anything do you think that will? pull that back together and actually counteract those forces?
3: Well, I think I think you're right about the centrifugal forces being there, Alex. And I don't think that these are accidents of politics. I think it's significantly uh, a result of where the economy's taken us over many years, centralization mm. just isn't good. For And if you look at Britain, we are massively centralised compared to companies like Germany, United States. It's in the name, isn't it? United States, is they do have significant local power. Yeah. Um, uh, population of the country is, is bigger than ever, even though the, perhaps the geographic area hasn't increased. The diversity is increasing. So I think all of these things, although they might be very welcome, the political settlement hasn't changed. We're still... Um, exactly where we were in the Victorian era. Um, And unless that changes, it's going to be hard for people to engage with politics. A big part of the Brexit referendum wasn't people worrying about the specifics of how the European Commission was appointed. It was that no one's listening to us and we feel a long way away. And that hasn't changed as a result of Brexit. People still feel that. Um, and, And that's why things like Metro mayors are actually getting a lot of traction. It's not because Whitehall wants to give us power. It's because people are saying... How do we get a say in how we run our own lives? And then there are those things where we are stronger together and we want to be keeping federalism. We want to be keeping those things that, yeah, foreign policy obviously needs to work together. And I don't think it's in particularly the interest of Wales or Scotland to go independent. Um, but we do want an economy that works for people locally. We want decision-making. And actually what people want is politicians who are their politicians, whether they're voted for them or not.
0: Now, as promised, Amanda Ferguson is a freelance journalist who made her name working for the Belfast Telegraph in the Irish Times. Currently, she's most frequently found writing news and politics for Reuters and The Washington Post. Welcome back to The Bunker, Amanda.
4: Thank you for having me back. It's been a long few days and I'm pretty tired.
0: <laughs> Hasn't it? Thank you so much for joining us. I know you've been you've been off your feet. Um, on the day, Sinn Fein increased its share by a couple of percentage points, but didn't get any additional seats to the uh, the 27 it held. The DUP, however, lost just under seven percent and three seats, meaning it is now the second biggest party instalment. How historic is this moment, Amanda? Is it built up? Um, uh, unfairly, or is it actually a milestone?
4: Well, it's, it's definitely a landmark moment. You know, in the 2017 Assembly election, the DUP had 28 seats and Sinn Fein had 27, and they have been sharing uh, power together for many years. But for the first time in uh, the history of Northern Ireland, which is 101 years old, we have an Irish Republican at the very top of government. Now, on a practical level, Uh, It it doesn't make much difference to the office of First Minister and Deputy First Minister because it's a joint office. You know, one doesn't exist without the other. The the word deputy doesn't mean uh, subordinate, but it's certainly uh, a change and something new and um, it's going to feed into the sort of twists and turns of everything that we uh, see in the coming weeks. So the uh, First Minister... Uh, office is there to be filled. And unfortunately, the DUP is indicating that it doesn't want to do that until it gets movement on the Brexit protocol. So it means that we can't get a government or fully functioning government anyway, until that matter is resolved.
0: Mm. The DUP went into this election with a sort of central pledge to do away with the Northern Ireland Protocol. And it lost to parties that broadly support the protocol. They are now refusing to participate in power sharing unless they get their way in the protocol regardless, which does not appear to me to be the most democratic position. Do you think it is sustainable for them to stick to this line?
4: Well, you know, I wouldn't rule anything in or out when it comes to Northern Ireland politics. The vast majority of the politicians that were elected at the weekend uh, want to get back to fully functioning government. The problem for the DUP is that it's not in a position to fix the protocol issue. Um, And also, it's not the only party that, that, that thinks that there are problems with the protocol. All of the parties acknowledge that it needs to be finesse. Uh, finessed and made easier for the uh, for businesses to operate and so on um and where the DUP are saying that they won't enter government until that matter is resolved uh, a smaller unionist party such as the Ulster Unionist Party has said you know the two things can can work hand in hand a uh, devolved government can function and the EU and the UK K can come to some sort of arrangement to try and address the concerns there is in the unionist community about the protocol. But I think added on top of this is the extra sort of unionist psyche uh, layer uh, to this whole affair because during the the lead up to the election. The DUP refused to say publicly whether it would uh, nominate for the role of deputy first minister if Sinn Féin became the largest party, and that was uh, interpreted by Irish nationalists and others as uh, had a bit of a stink about it. That you know it was okay if a unionist was in the top spot, but not if uh, someone from a, a different background was. So that's presenting problems for the DUP and, you know, can its base, its supporters cope with the idea of Jeffrey Donaldson being in a government where uh, it has the deputy title Mm, and it mm. really is the the optics of it and and the sound of it because there isn't much material difference between the two. I think it's who gets to shake hands with dignitaries and what order is about the height of it.
0: Amanda, um, excuse me if this is a daft question. So looking at the framing of the power-sharing structure... Is there actually a a side door open for Sinn Féin to get in one of the smallest, um, the smaller uh, unionist parties to power share with it? Because it seems to me that the framework is about the two communities, as it were, having representation at the top. But it doesn't necessarily point to you know, the largest of the unionist parties that needs to uh, participate in the power sharing agreement. Is that—is that something that might happen?
4: It's not a stupid question. You know, I understand. I, I spend my uh, working life explaining the complexity of, of Northern Ireland politics to, to, to audiences who have different understanding. And even whenever you get into it, there's layers of complexity that most people sort of, it's a, it's a bit mind-boggling. Essentially, when the 1998 Good Friday Agreement uh, was put together, it was envisaged that unionists and, and nationalists would be sharing power uh, at the top of government, that um it was important for all of the Traditions to be represented uh, within government. But nearly a quarter of a century on from that, we're now moving into a kind of new era and a new political landscape. And you've seen the surge of the Cross Community Alliance Party moving from the fifth position, the fifth uh, largest party, to the third largest party. Now, the three designations that there are at Stormont are unionist, nationalists, and other. Now, Alliance designate as other because they don't take a, a fixed constitutional position, so they're not um you know taking a taking sort of a position on whether they want to remain part of the UK or whether they want um Irish reunification. Now their support is drawn from a mixture of people. It could be drawn from people who are Republicans, Irish Republicans, or British Unionists, or people who don't care about that particular point, or people who are undecided uh, on the constitutional question, or people who can be persuaded and the anomalies of the structures of government at Stormont is that it would actually be easier for Alliance to be the first minister than it would for them to be the deputy first minister if they ever emerged, um, you know, for example, if they ever emerged as the largest party, they could take that first minister role. But if they came as the second largest party, they couldn't take the deputy first minister role because the other designation isn't large enough and the deputy first minister uh, role has to be fulfilled by the sort of de- second biggest designation. So in this case, the, the, uh, the largest party, Sinn Féin, uh, so it will be up to the the DUP as the the, the sort of bigger designation unionism is bigger than other. It's it's down to to the DUP to to nominate for deputy, um, and then you know Naomi Long will undoubtedly be calling for reform of this kind of structure uh, because the political landscape here is changing. So I I get that we're um, an unusual part of the world where there's there's sort of different layers of of complexity, and in the last day. The SDLP, who has formed part of of government up to this point, has indicated that it's going to move into opposition. So the last assembly was made up of the DUP, Sinn Féin, the SDLP, the Ulster Unionist Party and the Alliance Party. So five different parties run the executive. This time round, the SDLP isn't going to be part of that. Uh, We haven't uh, sort of uh, heard from the Ulster Unionists about what they're going to do. Uh, And if they moved into opposition with the SDLP, then the, the option on the table would be for Sinn Féin, the DUP, and Alliance to form a government, and as we know at the moment, the the DUP isn't prepared to do that. So I think that we're in for some difficult uh, weeks ahead because you know the, the focus on on Northern Ireland isn't isn't there as it was in the past because of a variety of of more more pressing matters, not least uh, the situation in Ukraine.
0: So uh, what happens next?
4: Well, the the speaker of the assembly the caretaker speaker uh, has sent out a letter to the parties indicating uh, that friday the 13th is due to be the the first meeting of the assembly so uh, some people <laughs> when they heard that particular uh, date. so i think i don't know whether it'll be lucky or unlucky for some Um, but we know um that the if they don't uh, the parties don't nominate speakers, uh, then that's as far as it can go. You know, that is uh, something that uh, will sort of halt everything if we don't get past that stage.
0: And we're looking at another election in the early fall, I understand.
4: It, it could possibly happen. You know, like I've been long enough in, in Northern Ireland journalism to know that you don't rule anything in or out mm. and you mm. know nothing's... Uh, Until it's signed on the dotted line, you can't say that something's definitely going to happen. But it's in the mix there somewhere, and I think that that would be a risky move for the DUP because... You know, it, it was punished to an extent by the electorate um, at, at the ballot box at the weekend. Where you saw an increase in support for the traditional unionist voice, more hardline party. Now, it didn't translate into extra seats for the TUV, but um, they certainly add into the to the unionist vote um, a little bit. So, you know, if there was another election anytime soon, you know, it may well galvanise some uh, non-voters or uh, unionist voters to come out, but I would imagine that people would be so annoyed um, that the Sinn Féin vote and the Alliance vote would go through the roof.
0: Lovely. Thank you,
4: Amanda. You're welcome.
0: Marie, local election results were partly overshadowed by Durham police reopening an investigation as to whether Keir Starmer broke lockdown rules as a photo of him drinking a beer with Labour workers in Durham resurfaced. Um Away from the spin, is there anything to the actual alleged tran- transgression, do you think?
1: Oh, God. Um, as a side note, it's been revealed while we've been in the studio that the person who filmed the video is the son of James Dellingpool. Um, so, yeah. in case we can think the story could get weirder. Uh,
0: <laughs> that is. Pretty weird.
1: It's yes, um, but so, um, so. I don't. So I, I found this really interesting because I found my uh, internal compass on this to be entirely wrong. Because when you know, w- when the Mel and the Sun were kind of whanging on about it day after day, and no one cared, before the local elections, I thought actually, you know, this is, this is interesting in itself because it shows that for once, the kind of right wing papers could not just drag everyone into whatever they decide to care about that week. Um, you know. And I thought it's going Mm. to go away by itself. Clearly, it has not. I think it is fair to say that it has not. Um, And things have gone, you know, quite dramatically bad for Keir Starmer. Um, But I'm not sure. So I find it, you know, my understanding is that basically there was some sort of campaigning day or something. And then they were meant to have a, you know, what was it? Like, you know, have a takeaway curry and then keep on working. But then they worked until too late. So they just had the curry and then didn't keep on working. And that sort of makes it a crime because it was no longer eating while working. Well, I, I, Adam, I, I Adam
0: Wagner, who is th- has emerged as a sort of mm. authority in this, says that um, because the rules were slightly different at the time, and that's what a lot of people forget, that this was a year on from the various party mm. gate stuff, and the rules mm. were much more relaxed. And the crux of them was whether it was an essential thing to do or not an essential thing to do. Mm. And he reckons that... I'd
1: argue that sustenance is essential. Yeah.
0: And and with, you know, with uh, the hotel's sort of Mm. food uh, being closed at that time, that, you know, Mm. he reckons there's no way Durham police will decide that eating, uh, you know, at the end of a working day was not, Somehow, you know, mm. <laughs> people need food. I mean, what a shock.
1: It's uh, Yeah, but, but again, I've been really taken aback and that was quite interesting. I was talking to some um, Tory sources today who are generally angry, but in a way I found fascinating. They were like, oh, but you know, all this sanctimonious hypocrisy from people who went after us for Partygate. And I was like, but it is different.
0: It <laughs> is very <laughs> it <really> is <laughs> very and I it's really,
1: you know These are chats I'm having where I'm like, of course I have no opinions, you know, so please tell me what you think. But I found it really hard because I... Obviously, it's completely
2: different. Yes,
1: yeah, yeah. um, yeah, so, so it's a re- really odd, at least, the kind of Tory view of this. I think that they sincerely are like, well, yet again, you know, the media just loves labour too much. And it's like, what planet do you live on? <laughs> yes, um,
0: yeah. yes. I, th- I think having a curry at the end of a working day is... Significantly distinct from turning 10 Downing Street into better cup of
1: from literal karaoke <laughs> during a respiratory like, illness. Yeah. Anyway, um, yeah.
0: I hear uh, Conservative headquarters and the Mail bragged about how effective this campaign to have Starmer investigated ha- had been. Um, does it reflect well on Durham Police that they succumbed to? Pressure. Nothing reflects well on anyone. This is (laughs) this is
2: all horse shit. Like what I will say is that listen, if it is now a criminal offence to be openly centre left and eat curry, then I'm fucked, right? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) An Indian man in this country. It's so it's radioactive for you. (laughs) It's so transparently different and. Just the gall with which Boris Johnson is effectively parading around, being like, well, of course, my suspicion that my opposite number would one day eat dinner means I have no <laughs> choice but to rack up a fat <laughs> rail and do it while jacking it to Prince <laughs> Philip's funeral is so outrageous <laughs> it, it Beggar's <laughs> pain. I think, you know, uh, Mr. Sturm had a statement a little while ago. He was right in saying that even the people pushing this line know that there's not really anything to it. Yeah. They're just trying to push... Um, a particular agenda. I mean, we have to remember that the mail was the newspaper that had "Don't they know there's a war on?" Uh, when people were concerned about the fact that uh, Boris Johnson tripped and fell into a conga line and uh, <laughs> uh, then ran a fucking dozen days mm. of uh,
0: gestama uh, eating. Like is that like, uh, listeners, <laughs> the war checks notes is still <laughs> going on. Um, Jamie, according to the Times hard-left activists were helping um, to bring Beergate back to the surface. They leaked that memo from the event. Is this Labour's civil war restarting, or is it kind of the last gasps of a, of a, of a conflict that's over?
3: I, I just don't believe that. I find that impossible to believe, um, because the same leaked uh, source was having a pop at Mary Foy and her staff and Mary's in the socialist campaign groups. So that makes no sense whatsoever. So I don't I think that's smoke and mirrors or something. But you know mm. what, The big issue here that everybody wants to know is what sort of curry Keir Starmer was eating. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody is, is uh, taking these serious issues and so putting the journalist integrity that is necessary to find these things out. I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? The, today, uh, the, the story out that there's 2 million people Unable to eat every day last month. And we're talking about did a guy have a takeaway when most people can't afford a takeaway and there's loads of people can't even afford food. Um, so, mm-hmm. yeah, the, the false equivalency in this is ridiculous. But I think, you know what? I think it's a good jujitsu move from, Steve, from, from Kia on this. But I think you're right. It comes down to that lockdown interpretation. So, legal interpretation is not like a question of examination of the facts. It's was this reasonably necessary for work? And I don't think Durham police are going to now say, yes, we're going to get rid of the leader of the opposition on, you know, a judgment call.
0: Yeah. And what a door that opens for Johnson to, like, show us when you had takeaways. <laughs> That'll be a never ending story. Um just to say to the listeners that, that uh, the statement uh, Jamie was referring to, it just before we recorded, um, Starmer gave a press conference pledging to step down if fined. Um, Marie, uh, is there a scenario where Starmer emerges from this stronger, actually, having pledged to do the right thing, if, for example, Durham police clear him quickly while fines continue to land on the number 10 doormat and Johnson keeps holding on to power like a toxic barnacle. Um, Might this gamble be the making of Starmer? He's been struggling to kind of break through, really.
1: He has. I'm wary of making a prediction, because as I was saying earlier, I managed to call quite a few things wrong um, <laughs> across Beergate. Um, so yes, so why not? Why not keep going? <laughs> now, I don't what I think I was writing. I've got a column coming out tomorrow on this. Um, and I think, you know, there are three scenarios here, which are either, you know, he's now said he would resign um, if, if issued an FPN. He gets issued an FPN, he leaves. Even that I reckon is not the end of the world, actually, for the Labour Party, in that it's I mean, as united as the left wing party uh, can be. Um, so, you know, could probably get a new leader. And again, like care, I think, you know, no one really hates him and no one really loves him, would not be the end of the world. So would probably actually be, you know, sort of like really bad for the Tories of saying, actually, you know, Labour did the honourable thing, the Conservatives did not, ergo. Um, that's a new line of attack. I think if he doesn't get fined, obviously, then that's brilliant because we're still waiting for the full Sue Gray report. We're still waiting for a fair few fines so then Labour can get the high ground. The only thing would have been, you know, care gets an FPN, decides to stay. Obviously, then the Conservative Party could have said, look, we're all the same. We are all equally as bad as each other. But we now know that's not going to happen. So there may be. The only thing I can see is, if maybe Kerr doesn't get an FPN but you know, because what he did was against the guidance but not against the law itself and so mm, you know, so then the Tories middling, tried to go you oh know, well he's muddying yeah, yeah. the waters, blah, 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 and then you know, which would be tedious, I think. But yeah. um But yeah, but again, so yeah, that's the thing as well, why I'm not um I, I think most scenarios here are not necessarily good for Keir Starmer himself, but good for the Labour Party, or at least bad for the Conservatives.
0: Mm. Yes, I I think the the reaction from the same right wing commentators that have been pushing this story to Keir Starmer's announcement has been quite interesting. Did They're see, sort of going, yeah. oh,
1: shit, shit. Did you see that amazing stat? Because uh, there was this poll yesterday or today um, that showed that more Conservative members want Keir to stay if he gets issued an FPN than Labour members?
0: Yeah, um, well, with, because is, that yeah. makes total sense. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, because yeah. if he goes, then they, they have an, an internally inconsistent position about Johnson. So uh-huh. it's a reflection of them wanting to keep hold of Johnson. Just like,
1: oh no, my actions, <laughs> they have consequences. <laughs> Again.
0: Back on more mundane matters, post-Brexit Britain is experiencing the highest inflation in a generation, the economy stagnating and the pound tanking, the usual vortex of despair after 12 years of Tory prime ministers then. Jamie... The Bank of England has raised interest rates from uh, three quarters of a percent to one percent. That's the highest level since 2009. What is the thinking behind this move? Because some people have struggled to understand it.
3: It's, yeah, well, what is the thinking behind British economic policy is a question. I'm afraid I can't (laughs) believe what they're thinking. Um, As far as I can tell, there isn't any thinking. The, the obvious answer when it comes down to that is the Bank of England still has a remit to keep inflation under control. Um, and there's still a belief that this is largely a result of an overheated uh, economy. And we all know that there's a significant result of dislocation of supply chains because of COVID, mm. because of Brexit, um, and... Uh, because
0: of Ukraine.
3: Yeah, yeah. Uh, so so all of these things, you increase energy prices, you're going to have increased um, costs. Now, is... The increase in interest rates actually going to do much about that. I really don't think it is, and I'm not at all convinced that this is as a result of an overheated economy. Um, so that is still their remit, and, and uh, there's obviously a lot of disagreement on the Monetary Policy Committee about this. So what do we need to do about it? Um, well, frankly, we need to, uh, a massively rebalanced economy that is investing in real things. Because if you increase production of real things, that's going to uh, help with inflation but there's a big problem again about skills a lot of people can't hire people because throughout the covid we've had the great resignation um there's a lot that needs fixing there um if we're talking about though in defecting us on on ordinary working people then i think the tories sooner or later are going to have to come up with an answer to labour's call for a windfall tax because at the moment the argument is um Ooh, uh, uh, look over there he's having a curry which is not the most convincing economic policy.
0: Yeah, and there was a weird um, statement from a junior minister asking people to save less and keep spending money to keep the the economy going. So you think, well, you know, if the Bank of England are putting interest rates up to sort of, Try it. I it's it,
1: that keeps happening, wasn't it? it, it? You know, at the same sense, time, please it? go back to the office and go to Pret, but also save to buy your house. And it's like, thanks, <laughs> cheers, brilliant. No, I'm no, 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 no notes, no notes.
0: It's, <laughs> it's it's our Our political life at the moment is basically unfolding like that meme of the guy in the cape and the two red buttons <laughs> that's sweating about which one to press. Um, Jamie, inflation is said to hit ten percent come the autumn as the war in Ukraine drives up energy and fuel prices and other external factors feed in. Do you think we will see further interest rate rises, or um, is that it?
3: Uh, I think I think there probably will be further interest rate rises. Um, but uh, this is not my, I have no special insight into here. I've not had a chat with the Monetary mm. Policy Committee. that um, <laughs> don't tend to ask my opinion on these things. Um, a lot of it comes down to the decision. I mean, we saw Sunak's spring statement, um, and even Tory commentators were saying, Is that it? He didn't do anything. Um, because regardless of if and when Johnson goes, they, what they can't change is the cost of living crisis. This is real. And this sort of stuff it gets people angry and it gets people on the streets um and this is also labor's opportunity to start saying here is a better way because what people want is some hope they want a way out they want to know there's a future here and it's not just that you know the future is shit and just put up with it people that gets people disengaged it doesn't particularly help us in the Labour
0: party either so yeah you you wrote a, you wrote a, a, a very good blog actually arguing for labor articulating a sort of vision for a better future rather than just pointing out what is going wrong. Um do you think Party Gate has weirdly distracted the opposition from doing what what its primary function is?
3: It has. And I think that that's a couple of reasons for that. Is one, it's kinda it was thought of as a safe approach. And then being shown that yeah, having to go at people for personal reasons, whether it's tractor porn or anything else, um, that doesn't mean they're going to vote for you. It just means they think that these people are useless. Um, it just tends to turn people off. Um, so that's part of it. And the other reason, I think, for the distraction is that there has been this, there's this false belief, I think, amongst, amongst a lot of political strategists that if we come up with a good idea, they'll nick it. I want them to nick our stuff and put it into practice because that makes people's lives better. They're not going to do it anyway. We know they're not going to do it. They're in hot to the sort of people who are hedge fund owners. They're not going to massively increase the minimum wage. They're not going to restore universal credit. And we're still saying they're doing nothing about serious investment in uh, clean energy, for example. So and let's just hammer them on that because then if they do suddenly decide to agree with us, at least that helps the lives of millions of people.
0: Yeah, you want a windfall tax on oil and gas companies, for instance, Yeah. Um. and the Tories are opposed to that. How would that tax help reduce costs for, you know, ordinary people across the country?
3: Well, it depends what you do with it. I mean, the proposal um, that I've heard from Rachel Reeves is that some of that would go directly into an energy bill reduction. So, so flat out redis- one off
0: redistribution.
3: Yeah, yeah, that is one yeah. option. Um, I think we, we, what we seriously need is long-term investment in clean energy, because the, the line that always comes out of Johnson and everybody else is, let's get some inward investment. Let's have a load of private equity companies owning our infrastructure that's given our clean energy, because these people, they're interested in the public good somehow. <laughs> None of us believes that. Why can't we just be investing in clean energy ourselves? Yeah, you know, I could create thousands of jobs in the Northeast with that. We've got, perfect places in the North Sea to stick these wind farms. And if we had a clean energy, a cheap, clean energy, we could become an
0: industrial powerhouse and tackle the climate emergency at the same time. Oh, Jamie, you're talking socialism now. We could end up like that basket case, Norway. Um, I hear the, the advice from Environment Secretary George Eustace was that Britons should buy value brands to cope with the rising cost of living. Will the existence of value brands come as news to people struggling to feed their family, do you think?
2: Well, quite. I mean, it's all a bit sort of... <laughs> oh, cheers for that, mate. Yeah, that's,
0: that's yeah nice. thanks. Uh, thanks, hello. Yeah, cheers. Thanks, hello. Yeah,
2: there's sort of a point, like, I think that uh, basically we're in a situation where all across the country people are cutting out on discretionary things and luxury things, and the more that you have, the more you're able to cut back on those things without really the core yeah, yeah. being affected, but after a point, people will get into a situation where there is nothing left to cut. And if you're already getting the value range stuff or buying stuff from a cheap supermarket, which why would, sure. But there's a limit to, like, other than that, you can just not have it, right? And and then that doesn't help anyone at all. But I, I don't know. I find these things really interesting because it's almost like he must know... How ridiculous it sounds to be like, "Have you tried own brand everything like it's it's fucking stupid, right, but presumably the only reason someone would say that is that the alternative is saying the reality of it, which is sorry you're on your own yeah uh, right yeah. and It's like, that's the whole thing, in much the same way that, you know, Mr. Johnson has his interview where he says, oh, and well done me for making it so that you can go on the bus, (laughs) even though I (laughs) wasn't the one who made it so that you can go on the bus. It's
0: extraordinary.
2: Because it's like, and and it's actually similar to when I remember a few years ago, Jacob Rees-Mogg saying that actually he thought food banks were a really heartening thing because it meant that uh, people were looking out for one another uh, in communities and stuff. And realistically what it fundamentally boils down to is you're on your own fuck you right? right and that that helps no one it's not really meant to help anyone yes
3: i've heard Think... that boris johnson is cutting back and he's only going to have silver wallpaper now <laughs> <laughs> um
0: marie is this when the rhetoric of boosterism catches up with Johnson because people will not merely be comparing their current situation and dwindling future prospects to what was but to the promises he made of Brexit sunlit uplands and levelling up and everything's going to be wonderful do you see what
1: i mean yes but i'm not, so i'm not sure that'd be the case i think Boris does end up quite often being quite lucky, even when he isn't, in that there is a pandemic to blame a whole lot of things on, even though, you know, what is happening right now is not the pandemic. A lot of it has to do with Brexit, etc., but 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 I think, you know, he can still point to, you know, the thing that happened. And I think that even though, you know, other countries, economies are struggling, but they're not strongly as much as um, as much as we are. But people don't necessarily look at that too closely. You know, even I don't really read about the economies of foreign countries. You know, we all have our line. Um, so, yeah, no, so, so I, I you know, as frustrating as it is, I think that he will be able to get away with, oh, we would have had the sunlit up lands. Of, of course, we would have had them because we're but... tremendous. But the killer virus. Sorry. Um, Which, again, frustrating. But yeah. And I'm not sure the problem is as well, if you're the Labour Party, if you're the Liberal Democrats, I'm not entirely sure how you make the opposite point in a way that is actually snappy.
0: The problem, I think, for him might be that because that's his only mode, he he would struggle to sell himself for the next election because he would end up just saying the same stuff, Mm. just going, well, it was... Yeah, no, that, that time, not that time, but, but but this time, yeah, I will make it happen, and that does have a hollow ring to it. Um, Jamie, uh, during his interview with Susanna Reid, um, Johnson uh, on Good Morning Britain, Johnson said about Elsie, a seventy-seven-year-old pensioner who spends all day on a bus to keep warm. Minister George Eustace suggested she go to her local council. For help, Um, what can a council do in that situation?
3: It's very difficult, isn't it?
0: Um, it, When
3: you've got the prime minister saying that, uh, well, bus passes are great because people who are freezing to death can sit on the bus all day, Um, Mm. and we all know actually the bus services are crumbling
0: anyway because they're not being funded properly. Um,
3: So, but if you find
0: one, you can you can stay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, There's actually
3: very little councils can do. Uh, in terms of directly helping people. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure where he's coming from with that. It's the same as his line, you know, buy your value brand caviar, presumably. Um, I'm not sure that there's any thought behind it. It's not the, the role of councils to change the benefits that mean that people can't afford to heat. It's not the role of councils to um, sort out fuel payments to people. That's a central government issue. and It's pure deflection on his part.
0: Yeah, so, so you think it's it's a cynical ploy, basically. Yeah. They've given a tiny budget to local authorities for emergency situations, knowing that people won't bother applying and, and they won't know how to apply and they won't know it's even available. Um, and then they can say, the problem is with your local council, that they, they didn't give you the money they, that they should have. I mean,
3: money. what they came up with was this idea, of uh, Rishi's idea is, well, we'll lend you some money, we'll take it back off you later. Um you know, Richie the paid up lender.
0: Maradona's hand of God shirt became the most expensive piece of sports memorabilia ever, selling for seven point one million pounds. Talking of wearing expensive clothes, at the Met Gala, Kim Kardashian wore the exact dress Marilyn Monroe wore when she sang Happy Birthday to John F. Kennedy in 1962. The dress sold for $4.8 the most expensive ever sold at auction. I didn't realize reading this would make me feel so grubby just after we've done (laughs) an item about people starving and being unable, unable to heat their homes, but there you are. Marie, have we gone mad or is the shirt actually worth that much?
1: No, of course it's not worth that much. But all, no, I, So I think, actually, all these auctions for famous things, like you should say should not be based on money. You should be able to submit, you know, let's say 500 words at most on what you would do with it. And I think the funniest oh, thing should win. Now, I, would, I would eat it. I'd be like, yeah, that, that's my pitch. If you give me the shirt, I will eat it. I'll make it weird. Jamie,
0: why do we attach so much value to certain memorabilia? You know, why, why, why is this stuff like so important? This little chunk um, of. I'm, I'm,
3: so I'm still <laughs> dealing with Marie. <laughs> <laughs> what would your pitch be? <laughs> well, talking about making it, I would eat Marie's on shirt. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> well, why do we attach? We don't attach so much. Why is it worth seven million quid? The answer is, is because someone has seven million quid that don't need. That's the problem, um, and if we fix that, we'd fix all the other problems we've been talking about today as well. So yeah, I mean it's iconic, and it, it was in it was in the sports museum for years. Steve Hodge got it when they swap shirts at the end of the, the match, and you know for whatever reason Steve Hodge has decided he wants the money. He's always owned it, even though it's been in the the, the museum. And and the Marilyn Monroe dress isn't there a little bit there though that we all feel that, um, I, and you can imagine I'm not really the core demographic that follows Kim Kardashian, um, but. That, that she's wearing this dress and it's some—it's clearly narcissistic and, and vain. And I think that puts us off as well. If these things are cultural artefacts, then let's have them where people can see them. They're in museums. And I think that idea that Marie came with, tell us what you do with it, that's far better. But uh, again, we're getting dangerously close to socialism there.
1: To be clear, I would also eat Marilyn's dress. <laughs> <laughs> So you
0: would, so you would become an installation in yourself, yeah. basically yeah. the woman that eats famous clothes. Yeah. Um, I hear the shirt uh, has spent the previous thirty six years on display. Um, as Jamie said, uh, would you wear something worth that much, or would would it be in a display case?
2: Well, Alex, case? personally, I find it quite offensive that you haven't noticed that I am wearing something worth that much. <laughs> Uh, currently because uh, the listeners will of course be unable to see but in uh, much the same way that a uh, maradona's shirt was worth 7.1 million pounds i spent 7.1 million pounds on and i'm currently wearing the shorts that gary lineker shat himself in <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so that's uh that's my contribution Unwashed, that of, uh, yeah.
1: the football. smell is yeah <laughs>
2: What we want um, but yeah, what, what would, would be... them it... we as well? <laughs> <laughs> well, no. With Maradona's shirt, my proposal <laughs> would be that I would uh, I would set fire to it while screaming "Justice for England," <laughs> and, and that would be filmed and aired on GB News as the most confusing item that uh, their viewers have ever seen. <laughs>
0: Fashion conservators were furious that uh, that Kim Kardashian wore that dress. Do they have a point? I mean, should we preserve something like Marilyn's dress rather than have it enjoyed by someone and seen by people? His clothes is for wearing. It's.
1: I'm
0: I'm kind of sympathetic to that. Basically, just buying a dead person's clothes, which is what I, which do I do all the time, all the yeah. time with charity shops.
1: Mm. Oh, I, so jokes aside, I do sort of stand by, I think, the idea that that should only happen if the person can prove they're going to do something interesting with it. So like, as someone who, um, like, I genuinely like fashion, and and I just found it incredibly annoying. So the reason why that dress is so famous is because of the way Marilyn's, you know, not entirely perfect body looked in it, the way she moved in it, what she did, the party she was attending, what she sang, etc. Like, you know, it's not just a dress. That's the point. Fashion is not just about the garment and the fact that Kim Kardashian, with a body so perfect, it's actually entirely sexless, you know, posing with her hair and explaining that she starved herself for three weeks beforehand to fit into it and then just kind of standing there like a statue. Mm. There's no point to that. That's very boring. That is the most boring way to enjoy fashion imaginable. Mm. So I think I'm I'm not against the idea, but I think just that very specific example I thought was very, very dull.
0: Do any of the three of you have some piece of clothing that you kind of preserve because you don't want it to get ripped in any way or you know it still has the tags on it or something
2: i had when, when all of the lockdowns sort of ceased i had a good look at myself topless in the mirror and a good look at my wardrobe and i now own a lot of hangers uh, basically, uh the way that that went. I had to stop being, pre- I had to be very realistic about what was actually going to happen. Yeah,
0: it's, you, got, you got after. rid of what I call your aspirational ordering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. oh, they only have this in a medium, but yeah. I'll be a medium at some point in the distant future, so let's keep hold of it. I should have taken
2: Marie's advice and just eaten them all
0: <laughs> Or burnt them for heating. Yeah. Um, what about you, Jamie? Do you have anything that's. A piece of clothing that's of particular, maybe emotional value to you. Yeah, you have
3: keep. football scarves. Um, all oh, right, and, and tops um, from key games that I've been to, where you swap them with opposition fans. I so keep them. Are they really clothing? I'm not sure they are. They're they're more banners and, and pennants and statements on the flags, really, rather than clothing.
0: Right, right. Um, now I'm going to ask all three of you. Mm-hmm. Um, so put your moral. Objections to one side. Let's say you have the choice of any famous piece of clothing, money, no object. What would you wear to the Met Gala?
1: Well... I actually, I actually I regret to say I don't have a funny answer to this because, again, I just really like fashion, so I'm just going to be entirely earnest for the no, first no, time in go, my life. No, no, go for it. Um, so I would be going to... So obviously you didn't say what Met Gala in the script. So I would go to the Met Gala where the theme was Notes on Camp. Um, and my uh, outfit would be the 2005 uh, Ready to Wear Collection Victor & Rolf amazing uh, duvet dresses. But you like It looks like an entire duvet, but more interestingly, there are pillows as well propped up behind <laughs> the head of the model with the hair displayed <laughs> on the pillows so I'd wear that have really smudged makeup just have one leg sticking out with a very laddered tight and carry an empty martini glass and I think that's very camp maybe one shoe one stiletto um and walk uh, to the Met Gala at the you know the camp theme one um like that because I think that would have been the perfect outfit
0: and then if someone asked you about it you could say oh this I just
1: yeah just well, that's rolled a bit. out of
0: yeah. <laughs> um how about you here?
2: Uh, so I, for some reason, find the phrase, you know, like the phrase, like wearing nothing but a smile and Mm -hmm. everything. I find the phrase wearing nothing but a sousaphone extremely funny. Okay, Uh, And so I think I would go wearing nothing but a sousaphone. (laughs) Yeah, like, so it's I went... my upper body wrapped in a gigantic brass instrument. <laughs> and then...
1: Well, and dick, dick
0: so out. So this would be a giant sousaphone that you could fit into <laughs> yeah. rather than one that <laughs> was the, uh, attached to, be, to you
2: in some way. To preserve my modesty, maybe some gold trousers and the...
1: Howard. Howard.
3: <laughs> How about you, Jamie? Come on, Ooh. give us i a... um, I'm not sure I'd look that good in a sousaphone. <laughs> But uh,
0: I don't think anyone looks that yeah. good in the
3: <laughs> You know, I reckon, <laughs> I reckon here could actually pull that off. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Because if you are, you know, I want to see you there, innit? <laughs> um, yes. I don't know. Uh, I'm torn. I, I think Neil Armstrong's space suit. Oh, that's oh, great. That's a <laughs> fun, good one. Fun. You so see, good. guys, good choices going on. Not fluff the line. <laughs> this time, <laughs> um, either that or you know what? ALC's dress tax
0: the rich. That'd do for me. I think I'd wear shares onesie from.
1: Ooh, yes. From
0: if I if I could turn back time, just to test its tensile strength. <laughs> just, just to see what happens. <laughs> And that brings us to the end of this week's bunker, which means it's now time for the panel's escape routes. What are the hobbies, obsessions, films, TV or books that have given our panelists a little break from political awfulness? Marie, what's yours?
1: I uh, was watching until last week the second season of Russian Doll, um, and I was convinced it was going to be terrible. And I was actually, if anything, quite angry at Netflix was, you know, doing a second season. I was like, can you not leave stuff alone? Completely wrong. It's brilliant. It's so good. I would say even better than the first one.
0: Yes, we reviewed it on the Culture Bunker last Saturday. Oh. Uh, I mean, anything that contains the line, so are you seeing patience today or just putting on a Beckett play here, <laughs> um, <laughs> gets so... my approval.
1: Ah, it was so good. The soundtrack as well is unbelievably yeah. good. Yeah. Um, Great. yeah. yeah.
0: Um, yeah. Terrific.
2: Uh, I have been. Uh, Really, I I want to give non television answers. So what I've been reading just sort of like Hindu scripture, okay. uh, which is really good fun, uh, actually, in translation because I've I've no Sanskrit uh, at all, okay. uh, so they might just be lying. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's all uh,
0: it's pretty wacky stuff, anyway. Yes, when it starts men- uh, mentioning sousaphones, you've yeah, got to get a bit yeah, suspicious. Yeah.
2: But I quite I quite like reading uh, Hindu scripture because it's basically, I think, the only religious scripture that you can read on the tube when people aren't like. Oh, is he a mental? Like what's what's going on <laughs> there? Like, if you if you're just casually thumbing through a Bible, it's a perfectly innocent, a Quran, a perfectly innocent thing to be doing. You're just like, but you know like, oh no, I don't I don't want him to start talking to me about God or what have you. Whereas if I'm there with the sort of principal of Misha just scrolling through and everyone's like, Oh, bet he's got really good ideas about spicing. And I do.
3: <laughs> <laughs> How about you, Jamie? Coming on here, actually, I did check out some of um, Ahia's videos. So watched a few of them on YouTube, which are quite yeah. good. Um, and
0: I don't think we've ever had one panelist using another panelist as an escape route. <laughs> well, uh, well, I'm in the presence of a cultural icon. Um, <laughs> and, uh, speaking of cultural
3: icons, so we were sitting around the dinner table yesterday, um, and my wife said, them, oh, Dennis Waterman's died. And we had to explain to the kids what Minder was. And that people <laughs> had to watch the television at a particular time. Um, so we ended up with uh, with my sons yesterday watching an episode of Minder, um, which was fascinating because they're all smoking. The cuts are really, really slow in the production. So you'll actually see them getting out of the car and walking into the building where there's no action. So it was actually an interesting piece of retro TV.
0: Brilliant. Um, mine is The Trip on Netflix. I highly, highly recommend it. It's a Norwegian-Swedish... Um, ostensibly horror film but very very funny about a couple that go away intending to murder each other and and it's absolutely delicious. The Norwegian As in both is, of them want to murder the other, but neither yeah, the yeah, yeah. of them knows that yeah, yeah. The inter- oh, that's the That's right. a very good idea. The, the, the Norwegian For a film, not in is real is On The Dagger. <laughs> and, uh, it, Your
1: fiancé <laughs> listening to this is going, oh. brilliant.
0: It's brilliant. And my sister lives in Norway, so I've been there a lot of times. And there's a lot of sort of in-jokes about how the Norwegians are coarse and the Swedish are snooty. And it's just... <laughs> Very, very funny, delicious, and incredibly gory as well. So that's my recommendation. And that's the end of this week's Bunker. Thanks to Marie LeConte. Thanks for having me. To hear Shah. Thank you. And to our special guest, Jamie Driscoll. Thank you. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full-length show this time next week. If you like what we're doing, support us on Patreon. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. And if you sign up, you'll get a shout-out on the podcast like this.
1: Hello from me and many thanks to Isabel Gelsko, Mark and Frank Burkett.
2: Many thanks from me to David McNabb, Simon Besant and Ben Thompson.
0: And finally, welcome aboard and many thanks to Dai J, Chaney Kent, Tom Hamper. We'll see you all next time.
3: The Bunker was presented by Alexandre, with Ahir Shah and Marie LeConte. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Jacob Archbold, Janos Ofernevich and me, Alex Reese. At the Camp Met Gala, I would have dressed like Michael Evis. That joke's just for me. Assistant production by Alina Ganatra. Music by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmask production.